This is the first time. Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center neighborhood. Here's your host, Jen Sodini. Big names, big names coming up. Big names in the nonfiction writing world. We've got Adam Homer Lawson, whose book, Animals on Buses, won the best nonfiction readers poll for 2017. You can get it at Amazon, Quimby's, Myopic. Guys, Adam Homer Lawson. I have never, I have never been particularly good at anything. My grades in school never reflected any underlying genius or anything other than a bare minimum proficiency. So I was never looked at as particularly smart, which is a, which is a fucking bummer because I looked like Steve Urkel. <laughs> and when you look like Steve Urkel but don't have like the genius level chemistry knowledge or a, a secret lab or a personality switching machine that switches you from Steve Urkel to your handsome alter ego, Stefan, it's kind of just a shitty condition. I was also uh, never athletic. In fact, some of my most torturous childhood moments came from my three summers I spent at Olive Harvey uh, Sports Camp where I was quite literally fucking tortured uh, from my arrival at 9 a.m. to my dismissal at 3.30 p.m. Even my swim instructor got in on the ribbing. Uh, We were practicing the frog stroke and one of my toenails cut him, and he literally yelled, watch it, claws! As if my fucking nails. And uh, one of my bullies from the robust bouquet of bullies I had heard the name claws, and then for the entire summer of 2001, uh, claws was screamed at me uh, everywhere. Which, in one hand, made me feel like a fucking X-Men, right? Oh, sweet, that's my mutant ability. I got sweet claws, I'm like Wolverine. But on the other hand, made me feel like an animal. Uh, I was also always picked last for uh, sports teams, which is an event that recently happened uh, again in June 2017. Uh, I work at a school. I'm a teacher at a school. And we had a a teacher versus teacher tug of war where I was picked last after Mr. Bush, who is the tech dude, He's the, he's the guy who, like, jiggles the HDMI cord. <laughs> Somehow they thought that guy... Oh, let's get him before Lawson. That's better. Uh, girls didn't like me very much, possibly due to my unathleticism, uh, the stutter I had, the eczema, uh, my Midas height. I was, like, 5'4", I'm 5'7 now, a little bit better. My plexiglass thick bifocals. This is depressing me to read. Or the slew... <laughs> of other deal breakers. Uh, Actually, now that we're on the subject, once when I was in third grade, Lindsey Griffin, shout out to Lindsey, launched a campaign to turn me from geek to chic, but gave up three days afterwards, (laughs) remarking that she was better off turning water into wine. We went to a Catholic school. But in my dealings with girls and bullies and teachers, 
and family, there was one underlining silver lining. They all believed me to be funny. I got called funny so often that it eventually became my identity. It was the mask that covered up my ugly parts, my appearance, my grades, my thorough, pervasive ineptness. Jesus. <laughs> I said this about myself. What is it? Fuck. Being funny was my safe harbor, my way to exempt everything that made me feel small, useless, and ugly, so I rode with it. In high school, I was infamous for insane stunts. I'd bark at the dean during assemblies. I'd spray shaving cream in the lockers of underclassmen. I'd snort sugar packets. Writing this down made me realize that none of this shit is funny. <laughs> the laughs of my peers kept me afloat. Even girls liked me when I was funny. The laughter of others kept me from the existential dread of having to find myself. I was funny. That was it. I could live comfortably in that realm of being funny. And when you're funny, like I was, the natural progression is to pursue a luxurious life of being a stand-up comedian. So that became my dream. For years, I'd studied. I'd watched specials and documentaries. I'd learned the monolithic names, the Carlins, the Bruces, the Priors. I'd study the lingo. I had notepads upon notepads of joke premises that I kept in a folder, a folder that I modestly prophesized would one day be in a museum <laughs> or sold to collectors for millions of dollars. I had the names of my specials all figured out. I had all the celebrities I would date. Scarlett Johansson, Megan Good, maybe George Clooney. I don't know, it's Hollywood, who knows? <laughs> who knows, I don't know. You don't, you don't know, don't laugh. I even planned out my rehab stay at the Los Angeles Betty Ford Rehab Center and my subsequent resurgence as a philanthropist. It was my dream and I had this dream of mine all laid out and this dream was gonna become my life. Of course, I never got on stage at that point. Uh, I pursued a girl in college whom I told quite vehemently that I was a stand-up comedian. I remembered the frequent, uh, I mentioned it the frequency, I assume, a used car salesman mentions mileage. Uh, but it was all erroneous, false bullshit. I'd never been on stage, because you'd have to be crazy to be on stage. Ew. All of us. Uh, sure, in my head I was a stand-up comedian, but in reality, it takes so much guts that terrified me. But one day, she came up to me with a flyer of an open mic night at a restaurant that very evening and told me that she'd love to finally see me perform. And I nearly shit myself. The open mic was at an Epic Burger, which was literally three minutes walking distance from my dorm, so there was absolutely no chance I could put it off. So while a few hundred unassuming college students plowed in to buy post-class criminally overpriced burgers, myself, and a slew of other comics and guitar players and poets were to create something similar to art. Over the sizzle of a burger grill and the rushing of a pop machine and the general cacophony of a restaurant during dinner time, I entered my foray into being a stand-up comedian. When the MC called my name, there was lukewarm applause from an indifferent audience. 
And then there I was in front of a mic for the very first time, setting off on my journey to fulfill my dream. And man, did I eat shit. It wasn't a dream, but a literal nightmare. I don't remember much from that three minutes, but I can tell you that before I got on stage, I had no fear, which is a bad fucking omen, right? <laughs> it might as well have been like a swarm of locusts or fucking toads falling from the sky because you have to have nerves before things are important because nerves are the way of the soul telling you that shit's important, right? Because all the best things are on the other side of fear. So if you're not nervous, you're gonna fucking eat shit like I did. I got on stage with no prepared material. Who needs material, I thought. I'm the funny guy. <laughs> but the main difference between being the funny guy in high school and actually being a stand-up is material. Material is a stand-up sword, the molded, crystallized, fire-forged, universal truths that we spin into comedy. They are the thoughts we all have, ran over with a fine-tooth comb, and presented in a way that is art. I was used to making dog noises at authority figures. <laughs> These are two totally different things. I got on stage that night and told my version of the aristocrats. and bombed. And when you tell the aristocrats and you bomb, you're just a pervert with a microphone. <laughs> if you tell the aristocrats and no one laughs, it's just a form of verbal assault. <laughs> but even after that colossal failure that left me trembling in near catatonic embarrassment, there was something that stuck. Something that I had, something I'm gonna leave nameless right now because it take too long. But being up here behind this mic, under these lights, it's a rush unlike any other. You kind of become a rock star or a president or a pharaoh, and for that moment, you kind of ascend, and you become the sole voice in the room, and your, room, and your words shape the reality. However small or grand the stage, it's the stage that calls you back. So with a loosely banged out set, I signed up for an open mic at my college a week afterwards. My set was so fucking hacky. And it involved a joke along the lines of, when a girl invites you over to watch a movie, what she really means is, let's watch 30 minutes of Fight Club and then finger bang me. <laughs> exactly. You're not laughing because you have a conscience. <laughs> but no one did that night because I fucking killed. I killed so hard from the time I hopped on the stage that I hopped off, the place was on fire, it was great, but what really solidified that stand-up was the thing I wanted to do, was my mission in life, was when a girl came up to me after the show and invited me to watch a movie at her place sometime. <laughs> sort of, that's exactly why ex I had to continue, didn't I? Uh, that was the moment I knew that I had to be a stand-up, and that moment launched me into a series of wacky misadventures into the night and onto the stages of rec rooms and banquet halls and living rooms and sometimes actual stages. Uh, that moment launched me into several years of triumphant nights, one including I opened for Hal Sparks, a uh, Hollywood D-lister, uh, the third favorite guy on those VH1 countdown shows. Opened for him one night, he's a nice man. Follow, he follows me on Instagram, isn't that nice? Uh, to, the, uh, <laughs> to the annihilatingly depressive, depressing, one night, uh, a date, walked out literally halfway through my set. Never, literally never talked to me again. Yeah, let's imagine that. Uh, when my mother and father found out I was doing stand-up, it was met with morbid acceptance. 
In college, I wasn't the most communicative person, so the revelation that I went on stage and spoke to strangers was maybe a silver lining to them. If they couldn't get anything to me, maybe seeing me on stage would prove a window to the complexities of their changing son. And the first time my father went to one of my shows, he pulls me aside, and before I go on stage, he says, with an uncharacteristic tenderness, if you're gay, I'll love you just the same. Which implies on one hand that despite my father's age and background and political leanings, he's an ally to the LGBTQ community. But on the other, thoroughly more confusing hand, what did my father think I was gonna do on that stage? <laughs> Ultimately, however, this dream of bathing in lights and making live art became sort of a reality, and sometimes reality is a fucking bummer. It was a lonely life, train rides to venues, shitty drinks, shitty comics, myself among them, bombing night after night, late, long hours, days so steeped in failure and anxiety, it began to feel like an endeavor not dissimilar to Sisyphus rolling up that boulder that's up the side of the mountain in perpetuity, except at least Sisyphus had no one to watch in dismal horror every time the boulder fucking fell back on him. He was able to fail in private. My failures were public spectacles. Although it wasn't all bad, some of the best nights I've ever had in my entire life have been because of stand-up, but subsequently, some of the most fucking horrendous nights were also due to that fucking thing I used to do. And at this point in my life, I've kind of given up stand-up. Sort of. I still go to open mics. I still go to comedy shows, because I feel like comics are philosophers and vaudevillians and priests, they're interesting, even when they fail, fail, maybe more so. I get jealous when I see someone kill it, when I see girls in the crowd, when I hear the MC give a special intro that denotes respect and reverence. And sometimes I really miss the lights and the sound of my voice through a mic. And even now, I'm not sure it isn't still my dream. I don't think I'm done with stand-up. It's just a dream that's presently and contently on the back burner. But since I've given it up, a few other dreams have actually managed to crawl out of the obscurity and take tangible form in my life. I'm an educator now, which is a father's dream of mine, which is my father's dream of mine. I'm a published writer, and the book I wrote won me an award and got me on this stage. I'm also a father. Just kidding, I'm not a father. <laughs> but comedy works in threes, so. And I'm on this stage right now, and you guys laughed, and that satisfied my need for now. Thank you. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell. I've got 25 minutes to go. Whole town's waiting just to hear me yell. I got 24 minutes to go. Well, they gave me some beans from my last meal. 23 minutes to go. And nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes to go. Well, I said.
chills my spine. Eleven more minutes go. Well, the trap and the road, oh, they work just fine. Ten more minutes to go. Well, I'm waiting for the party that will set me free. With nine more minutes to go. But this ain't the movie, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. With my feet on the trap and my head in the noose. Five more minutes to go. been listening to a chirp radio podcast of our live storytelling and music series the first time our storyteller was adam homer lawson and the first time four performed 25 minutes to go by johnny cash the first time four is steve frisbee liam davis gerald dowd and scott stevenson to hear more first time pieces check out the series website firsttime.chirpradio.org and you can find other podcasts produced by the station at chirpradio.org slash podcasts chirp radio Hear what's next.